Thank you. It's great to see you guys. Good morning. I, uh, I'm excited uh, to be with you guys today. And uh, yeah, I do get to serve on the, our North American team and help lead our North American team uh, called Every Ethne through uh, as a part of ABWE. And so we love local churches and we love spending time with local churches. And uh, I've loved all the different times I've gotten a chance to get together with your pastor, uh, Pastor Paul, and he just loves you guys. I'm going to tell you every time that we're together and grab coffee or breakfast at Rise and Dine in Chesterland, if you've met him there, he, uh, he speaks highly of you guys. So uh, grab your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Um, during COVID, our family uh, made the best and maybe dumbest decision we've ever made. At the same time, same thing. It'll make sense when I say these next words. We got a puppy. <laughs> right? Um, his name is Wrigley, and he's a golden doodle, and we love him to death. He is awesome. Although it's like we got a new baby in the house. Right? And now he's a toddler. So we've tried to institute very strict uh, food rules for him. He is not allowed to have any human food. We have our food. He has his food. Right? Amen? Right? Like, we keep those things separate. Um, except for one thing. <laughs> when he was smaller, and we used to give him baths at home, we would put him up on the countertop to dry him off, because he has a really long, curly hair. And we'd put peanut butter down on the countertop to keep him still while we blow-dried his hair and wiped him down, right? And it's amazing how much he loves peanut butter. That is his favorite snack in the world. I can tell you this. We can, it doesn't matter what room that he is in now. If we open up that can of peanut butter, he comes sprinting into the kitchen. And there's almost like a, a look of despair when he realizes it's for us and not him. Because he just loves it so, so much. Every now and then, what we'll do now is we'll take one of his bones that he has. If... This is kind of our, you know, babysitting moment. Like, we'll put some peanut butter in the bone and take it and set it down and let him have a feast. But what's interesting is when we do that, when we open the peanut butter and we put it in the bone, he is locked in. Full attention. He, I'm telling you guys, his eyes are locked on that bone. He doesn't blink. Even when we begin walking out into the living, he gets jumping around, but he doesn't take his eyes. He doesn't lose focus. He has one thing on his mind. And we finally give him the command to go. He's oblivious to the world. He is totally and completely focused on that treat. Can I be honest? Sometimes I wish I gave attention to my soul and my salvation, the way that our dog gives attention to a bone with peanut butter. Full attention. Full focus. Locked in. It's my only concern. 
This is what I want to talk about from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 this morning. Paul's great letter to this church. And we're going to kind of give a big idea for what we're going to talk about today. Is this, is that God desires us to give attention to our salvation, specifically in the area of Christian contentment. That God desires us to give attention to our salvation, specifically in the area of Christian contentment. I believe it is the Lord's will and the Lord's desire that we live our lives locked in with a focus about our salvation, specifically in this area that we're going to look at. It it should make sense as we walk our way through this text this morning. But just in case you don't know what's going on in this letter, let me catch you up. Okay, This book, the book of Philippians, was written by the Apostle Paul about 10 years um, after he planted the church. Paul was a church planter on his second missionary journey. Take time to read Acts chapter 16 sometime, and, and you'll see the remarkable events that took place in the planting of this church. Now, fast forward about 10 years, and Paul is in prison, and he writes a letter back to these people that he loves deeply. In chapter 1, he talks about the joy that he has for them, that every time he thinks of them and prays for them, he's just moved to deep joy. He, he says, I yearn for you with the affections of Christ Jesus. He wants them to continue growing so that their, their actions reflect the gospel that they say that they believe. Then in chapter 2, he addresses one issue of unity in their church. He tells them that the path to unity is to avoid selflessness and to look to the interests of others. And who's the greatest example of that? It's Jesus, right? In verses 5 through, not, uh, uh, five through 11 is our example that brings us to our text this morning, okay? Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And to help us maybe grasp this, let me just give you three quick steps, or three, they're not quick, three long steps. <laughs> three steps to give attention to our heart of contentment. Number one is this recognize the paradox of sanctification. Recognize the paradox of sanctification. If we're going to give full attention to our salvation and our souls, we have to recognize the unique nature of sanctification. I use the word paradox because at first glance it seems to be a contradiction, but once we explore it, we're going to find this to be true. Look at verse 12. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, here we go, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says in verse 13, For God is the one who's working in you. For God is the one who is doing it. He says, get busy, people. Get busy with what we're called to do, but don't forget that on the backside of it, it's only possible because God is doing it. Now let's pull these apart and then we'll put them back together, okay? In verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's like, hey, loved ones, loved ones, I mean, I care deeply for you. I know that you've been so receptive 
You've been so receptive to my teaching and to listening and, and growing in your faith. You've been so receptive when I've been gone and when I've been there. But let me encourage you to keep going. Keep going. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does he mean here? He's saying, make your eternal salvation fruitful in the here and now. He's saying, make sure that you're living like a Christian. Pay real careful attention to your holiness and how you're walking. Please focus your efforts on walking like Jesus. Now, I think it's helpful to understand what he's saying by understanding what he's not saying, right? He, he does not say, work for your salvation. He doesn't say that. That would not be the gospel of grace that he mentions that they both share in chapter 1, verse 7. This would be contrary to really the rest of his teaching in the New Testament. Salvation happens by grace alone and through faith alone, right? It's not by our works of righteousness that we're saved, uh, but through the washing of regeneration of the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out richly, on us through Jesus Christ so that we might be justified by His grace. I don't know who needs to hear this, but just remember, there is no work that you can do to earn your salvation. None. He doesn't say, keep your salvation. That's not what he's saying in verse 12. This would not be the gospel he preached to them. And what he said in chapter 1, verse 6, where he said, He who began the good work, he's the one who will bring it to completion. Right? You're not saved by works, and you're not kept by your works. It's all of grace. Even, I mean, you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? The really famous verse, you're saved by grace through faith and not of yourselves. You know what verse 10 says? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So we're not, um, we don't work to keep our salvation. And he doesn't say, uh, let go and let God, right? Our holiness is not just about getting out of the way so God can do what he wants to do. This is not meant to be some sort of trite mantra that we fit on some sort of coffee cup. Sanctification is not let go and let God. But maybe it should be let's go and let God. He works through our striving and focus in working towards holiness. Well, what is it? Uh, um, what he does say is to work it out. He says, strive for holiness. Show that your confession is real, that it's true in your life. I believe uh, Pastor Paul t- told me you guys just finished the book of 1 John, right? And you're starting the book of 2 John. Well, my guess is that you saw over and over and over again in 1 John that the life of someone who claims to follow Jesus is becoming more and more like the Savior Jesus, right? Saying more and more like no to sin and more and more, yes to Christ. How, how we live proves that something has happened in our life. This is really the human responsibility of our sanctification. Now flip the coin over. And what we see in verse 13, for 
It is God who works in you. Four gives the foundation upon which you and I, as followers of Jesus, can work out our salvation. Four gives the foundation by which you and I can say, man, we're going we're gonna to strive hard after holiness. We're going to say no to sin. This is the gracious indicative. Here's the point. We are able to follow the command to work out our salvation because of the grace that he is working in our life. But there are no excuses. There are no excuses we can make for our sanctification and holiness or lack of that. We're responsible to give attention, full attention to our soul and for working for our holiness. And at the end of the day, we look back and say, God is the one who makes that possible. How these work together, this is a grand mystery. I just know that the Bible teaches both. It's honestly the same thing as Paul in his ministry, mission, and life in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 through 29. He says, Him uh, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then he says this in verse 29. For this I toil. I toil. I strive. Struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me. So if someone were to ask, well, where do we see God most at work? I think what Paul would say is, where I'm laboring the most to see everyone come to maturity in Christ. You want to know where God is working most in your holiness? It's where you're striving to work out your salvation and saying no to sin. That's where. Paul toiled. We toil. We strive. We work hard. Recognize the paradox of sanctification can free us to strive hard after holiness and give attention to our salvation. Number two, the second step, this is the one that we're going to have to buckle in for, okay? Just hang on with me. Number two, receive the command against complaining and arguing. Receive the command against complaining and arguing. Can I tell you? Um, I was just telling some people before, like, it's a hard week to study on not complaining. This is, I mean, <laughs> it's a good week because the Lord reveals so much to you about your own heart. So I'm excited for you in this moment. Although I'm going to tell you, this may not be fun. Can I be real? Work out, I want you to understand the context here. Are you ready? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the only illustration, look at verse 14, that he gives on what this might look like is do all things without grumbling or disputing. Friends, listen. Do we want to be faithful to strive after our own holiness, to give attention to our salvation? We start by dealing with our grumbling and disputing hearts. Now, 
let me break down these two words here. Grumbling. Many different translations have different words here. Murmurings, protests. A lot of them say complaining, for sure. What's behind this word is a rebellion against God for your current situation. It implies a, uh, a spirit of insubordination. It says, God, I don't trust you right now with the situation that you've placed me in. Now, most of the time when this happens, we don't verbalize that. But the words that come out of our mouth that reveal the heart say that we do. One commentator said it like this, that this is the result of a stubborn spirit and will. The other word, disputing. This has to do with controversies. It's, it's arguments. It implies intellectual rebellion against God that impacts a local community. It's often the result of grumbling. What happens is people grumble and then they begin to argue and, and dispute amongst each other. It separates people. It, it causes fractions. It creates problems inside the gathering of people, specifically in this context, the gathering of God's people. Now, take these together, and I tend to see these as, as a spirit in opposition to Christian contentment. Well, what's that? Christian contentment says, God, I trust you for where you have me in life right now, in this situation that I find myself in. These, these words of grumbling and disputing, it's like um, that's the heart that verbally says, God, I don't, I don't like this. Of course, the best illustration for this, and no doubt, I'm sure Paul had this in mind when he wrote this, is the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, right? Even the word murmuring, don't, don't you love that word? Like, like it's a, uh, what's that name? Onomatopoeia or something? Like it sounds like murmur, 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 you know, like murmuring, right? I, over and over, we see the people coming out of Egypt. They complain about their hard journey and and Moses, why did you bring us out? Like, you brought us out to die of starvation. At least we had food back there, right? Or, or like, oh, there's no water, and I can't believe it. you brought us out just to kill us in the wilderness. Like, and over and over and over. Those people are too big in the promised land. We can't go in there. This complaining led to arguing in their midst. It's it was just a terrible situation, all because they're not content with where God had them at that time and place. Have you ever felt like that? Do you feel like that? Discontent with your situation? Our team is working to bring... Um, we had a church approach us uh, in southern Ohio that said, hey, can you help us bring a, uh, someone over, uh, a church planter from Cuba? over to uh, southern Ohio and central Ohio to help work with Hispanic church planting. This guy is a gifted church planter. He's planted five churches. He's about 40 years old. He three in Cuba, two in Ecuador. Godly, godly family, skilled man. Trying to do things the right way in immigration is really difficult. I can't go into the whole story, but they're stuck in Guyana, right now waiting for some sort of immigration process to happen um, they have gotten out of Cuba and they're waiting 
for the U.S. to open up doors. Pray, pray for the Molinas, would you? I mean, they are waiting in anticipation, and it's been a hard, hard situation for them. They are active, actually. He sends me um, emails and texts weekly about, hey, while we wait, I got to share the gospel with these people. I went to this church and they asked me to speak and I was able to do this and interacting with this. And this whole time, I'm like, I can't imagine being in the situation that they're in. I have never once heard him whine, complain about the situation that God has him in. We know this is hard for us. We know that this shows up in our life in a lot of different ways. Um, how might this temptation be for us? Um, well, I want you to quickly think back over your last week. Where is grumbling and disputing spirit shown up for you in your life? Where have you not been content with what God is doing? And I know you probably don't need me to give you examples, but I feel like we should probably get really practical with some things just to make a point. And I'll tell you the point once we're done. But allow me to help start the process. How, how does a grumbling, um, disputing spirit, a lack of contentment in God show up in us? Well, let me give you several ways. How about the weather? Anyone ever complain about the weather? You do realize we live in Northeast Ohio, right? So it's going to be cold. It's going to be overcast all the time. We have like many shades of gray. The sun never shines. And then it's going to be too hot and it's going to be too humid and there's too much rain. It's too dry. We're never satisfied with the weather, are we? How about athletic events? From kids' sports to professional sports, we complain, we argue with umpires, with referees, with other parents, with teammates. I have multiple times. The Lord is dealing with me on this. Um, I've helped start a baseball club um, that's grown significantly over the last seven, eight years. And can I tell you how often I hear and see and witness complaining and arguing and grumbling and disputing? How often have I done it? It's just embarrassing for me and honestly convicting to my soul. How about, how about your bosses? Coworkers? You ever complain about them? Do you ever complain about the work your boss expects from you? Do you ever whine about, I have that spirit that happens when your coworker gets the promotion that you think that you deserve to get? They don't pay me enough, Right? Any employers here ever have to deal with disputes inside the business? Of course. Why? Because humanity is never satisfied. Parents. Do you ever complain about our parents? I think children um, tend to complain often of their parents. They're, they're too strict. They don't let me do this, and they don't let me do what I want to do, right? They're not nice enough to me. I was reading something this last week about there's something that's now going around called adultism. Have you ever heard of this? Where there's a whole... Man, I could... <laughs> like, kind of a complaint that from kids, like, you are downgrading us because we're kids and you're adults and you think that you're better. I'm like, what? Really? 
I wonder what it would look like if we, <laughs> if we were the fly on the wall when our kids are talking to their friends about us. <laughs> what would that be like? And then what happens is our parents get older, and then they're like, my goodness, if they just repeat that story one more time. <sighs> right? Or my parents, they talk too much. Or, there's too much work taking them to all these medical things all the time, and I don't have time to do this and that. It's just too hard. Of course, parents, we complain about our children too, right? Our kids don't listen to me. I don't understand this. They cost too much, and I spend too much money, and you want too much of this. They take too much of my time. Why don't, why don't they honor me the way that I should be honored, right? Don't they know how much I do for them? We fill our hearts and our minds with complaints and grumblings with our kids, um, often forgetting how bad we were as a kid, <laughs> right? Of course, how about the family gatherings? I mean, you talk about super spreader events? <laughs> family gatherings for murmuring and complaining? How about your spouse? You ever complain about your spouse? <laughs> Why didn't he put away the dishes? She never responds to me the way that I want her to respond. Car situations. Two weeks ago, I had to take a vehicle in to get fixed, and the mechanic called me. He's like, it's going to be 1200 bucks." I'm like, what? you got to be kidding me. And my heart and my spirit, I'm just like, and to the mechanic, I'm like, <laughs> like, like, why in the world when one car goes down, they all go down at the same time, right? Talk about complaining moments. How about health issues? God, why do you have me going through this? I don't understand it. And, oh, and just, oh, why doesn't my body work better? Why don't my knees not hurt all the time? How about political leaders? Do I even say anything about that? Do you ever complain or, 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 or uh, have disputes about political leaders not realizing that God is on the throne? How about pastors, elders, decisions? I mean, why is the back door of so many churches so wide open? Because we get to hearts of complaining and disputing way too often, much too easy. How about sermons being too long? Just kidding. No one ever complains about that. <laughs> By the way, it is interesting when you go and preach at a church and you're going to preach on complaining. You're like, hey, uh, what are they going to say? Right? <laughs> and they're done. I'm just telling you. Listen, we could keep going and going and going. Why spend so much time on this? Why go through these examples? Here's what I was reminded about last week. Let me be very, very clear. Every single one of these, plus the hundreds and hundreds more that we do all the time, every single one of these is a sin against a holy God. We don't think like that. We live in the moment. Of course, I want to give one caveat here. Obviously, you read through the Psalms and you see things in the Psalms that appear to be like complaints, but they, they actually flow from a heart of trust. We call them laments. 
There's something healthy about crying out to God and the difficulty of a situation in which you are living in, but saying, God, I'm going to trust you in it. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the beginning of Job. We're talking about the end of Job. Not about where he says, hey, I'm going to trust you in everything. It's at the end, we're like, man, I just wish I was never even born. And God's like, okay, you want to question me? Step up and put your pants on like a big boy, and you answer me this question. Where were you when I created the world? Right? Read Job 38 through 42, and it's like... That's not what Paul's talking about here. In Philippians 2, he's talking about the hard attitude of not trusting or being content with what God is doing in our life. One last thing in verse 14. Do you see that word, the second word, do all, all things? No wiggle room for us to say, but yeah, but you don't know my parents. Yeah, but, but, but you don't know my kids and how difficult, but, but, but you don't know the situation that I'm going through. Yeah, but Thad, you don't understand how these decisions that my bosses or these political leaders made that impact my job. You don't understand that. So I have the right to complain and argue. You don't, you don't understand how that restaurant on Friday night for me took an hour and 20 minutes to get in. I'm like, Lord, I get it. Okay? I get the illustration. I understand. I'm preaching on complaining. I was telling someone that just yesterday. I'm like, ah, oh, man, I waited for an hour and 20 minutes to get into this restaurant on Friday night. They're like, well, at least you ate. There's some people who went to bed hungry. I'm like, oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, thanks. This command is all-inclusive and designed to target our heart in trust in the Lord. Listen, I'm so thankful. I get to work with hundreds of churches every year. Some are doing great and some are struggling. I do wonder... Listen, I do wonder if we would see a significant increase in the health of our churches, in the impact of our churches, in the communities in which they exist. If we took this command seriously, how might it impact the communities we live in if our churches, if we were a refuge of hope and trust in the Lord of all things instead of an incubator for complaining and arguing? Martin Lloyd-Jones said it like this. He said, There is nothing that leads to such havoc in the Christian life. There is nothing that so ruins life as the spirit of murmuring and disputing. It ruined the whole story of the ancient people. It has ruined the Christian life and experience of many a Christian in this world. It makes you ill at ease. You become despondent. You do not understand anything. You feel your law is the only difficult one in the world. It leads not only to that, but to a poor testimony. It brings disgrace and disrepute upon the Christian name. Christians, will you receive this command today? Will you embrace it? Will you live it? Will you obey it? If we want to give full attention to our souls, to our salvation, then, we, then let's give attention to our heart of, com, of contentment in all things. This then leads us to the third really quick point. But third step, number three, is rejoice in the impact of Christian contentment. 
Rejoice in the impact of Christian contentment. So if we say no to these these temptations and we live our lives without grumbling or without disputing there's there's so much that we could go into in verses 15 to 18 that we don't have time for but but how does paying attention to our salvation specifically in this area impact our life well let me suggest three potential reasons to rejoice the first is this is that we rejoice because we uh, first we prove ourselves to be children of god do you see that in verse 15 So back up, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Like something happens when you live your life in working out your salvation by not complaining and arguing. We prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. We display who we really are. We model to others and to ourselves that God is at work and we align ourselves externally to who, who, uh, who God has made us internally, his child. Second, we shine as lights in a crooked and twisted world. This is profound to me. Do you see this in verse 15? Um, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is obvious. I probably don't have to convince you that we live in a crooked and twisted generation, right? Living a life that does not complain in, in circumstances shows that something is different about you. We live in a world of complainers. We know this is an issue even in the secular world. There, uh, I saw this last week. There was a CNBC headline that read this. Stop complaining. It makes you dumber. I almost said something I shouldn't have said. But the article goes on to say in 1996, Stanford study that complaining or being complained to for 30 minutes a day can physically damage your brain. I don't know. I'm not a brain scientist, okay? What I do know is that the ugliness of complaining is much more obvious when people are doing it to us and we listen to it than it is when we're doing it ourselves. A few months ago, my travels took me. I was someplace warm, and uh, I had a day off, and I was able to play some golf. It was absolutely terrible. I say that because I was playing really well for the first five, six holes, but the guy I was playing with was not, and his attitude and his complaints just made me not ever want to play golf again. You've probably been there. You've probably... I kept saying, dude, you're not good enough to get upset. <laughs> like, I don't know why you're upset. You're not good enough to be upset at golf, right? There's another article I read this week. It says, research shows that most people complain once a minute during a typical conversation. Complaining is tempting because it feels good, but like many other things that are enjoyable, such as smoking and eating a pound of bacon for breakfast, complaining isn't good for you. Well, I don't know about the bacon thing, <laughs> right? Do you... Do you want a strategy, are you ready for this, on how to reach others with the gospel in your community? Be different. Be different. 
shine as lights in the world. Shine as the light in the world that Jesus says you are. Christian, what would happen in your redemptive relationships with people in your life if you, if you refuse to argue with the umpires while everyone else is doing it? Well, what would happen if you refuse to make life all about you even during the hard times of life? What would happen in those relationships with unbelievers in your life that you refuse to complain about the waitress when something comes out wrong? Or if you refuse to complain to your friends about your health insurance or the health issues that you're experiencing? What, what would happen if you refuse to grumble about your spouse or children when you're with all your friends and they're grumbling about their spouse? I understand you got issues. But what if you said, I'm not going there? What if you refuse to hate on your coach when all the teammates think that he or she is dumb? What, what if you refuse to join your coworkers in complaining about your boss? What would happen if you refused to post on social media your disdain for political leaders when everyone else is doing it? Christian, we can do this. You can do this through the power of God working in you, but you've got to work it out. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Paul affirms that when you do all things without grumbling and disputing, you will shine as lights in the world. Third, really quick, we encourage our spiritual leaders. This is kind of cool. Look at verse uh, uh, 16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We obviously don't have time to unpack all this, but Paul says, listen, a Christian, what Paul's telling them, when you do this and you work out your salvation with fear and trembling and you say no to grumbling and disputing, man, it makes me so proud that I did not run or labor in vain for you. I can tell you, numerous pastors that I met with during 2020 I understand it was a terrible year for everyone. Nobody was happy. And I got to tell you, for pastors, it was ridiculous. It was hard. There was, there was no win. When people are squeezed, we know what comes out, right? But I know several pastors who during that time were heartbroken over what their members were posting on social media. They wanted to quit pastoring. Because the arguments that were happening on a social front that everyone could see were between members of their churches. Friends. I mean, the complaining, the grumbling, the arguing, the disputing. Man, you want to encourage your pastors? You want to encourage the spiritual leaders and the elders of your church? Even look up at chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. You want to make me happy? Be unified. Live together in peace. Well, now, Thad, 
this is all good, it's nice, it's fun. Okay, thanks for this. It's going to make lunch really interesting today. How do I do it? How do I practically work this out in my life? Let me end with the words of the beginning of verse 16. Here's how. I love how Paul just mixes this in this. Do you want to um, do all things without grumbling and disputing? Do you want to be like the child of God that you were created to be in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you're shining as lights? Do you want to do that? Verse 16, hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the word of life. What's that? It's the gospel. It's Jesus. How do I give attention to my salvation, specifically in the area of Christian contentment? How do I do it? I look to Jesus, who entered into the wilderness, just like his ancestors, the Israelites, did. But he did not do as they did. Instead of complaining, he trusted and relied upon his Father in the midst of terrible temptation. How do I do this? Well, I look to Jesus, who was mistreated and abused like so many others these days, and yet he never grumbled and he never disputed. How do I do it? I look to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross for my sake. How do I hold fast to the word? Like, I hold fast to the word of life, the gospel, the message that gives hope and clarity in difficult times. I, I hold fast to the gospel, which reminds me that Jesus came to do what I couldn't do. And he died the death that I deserve to die so that I can live the life I don't deserve to live. How do I do it? I hold fast to Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. Focused upon the gospel, and Jesus makes everything else in life fade into the background and become meaningless. I pray, I pray that you hold on to him today for his glory and our good. Guys, let's give our full attention to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time to open your word. A convicting passage, I know for me personally, and just the complaining and grumbling and disputing and Lord, I pray that I give attention to my salvation and my soul to work it out, trusting in you to do the work we know for your glory and for your good. Lord, help us to hold fast to the faithful word, to the word of life, to Jesus, even today. In Christ's name, amen.